All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Diplo Club podcast. We are really excited to be doing this. I mean, it, I mean, quite literally, we are in we're in three different time zones, drinking three different beverages uh, under incredibly different circumstances. I am drinking a, a, a Coors Light. Uh, John here is drinking. What are you drinking, John? Uh, this is a, a, a white Burgundy, uh, which <laughs> I don't know. It's it's white wine. I have no idea. And what what time of day is it? It's going on uh, 11, uh, quarter past eleven at night here in the UK, which is where I am. And JD, JD, what do you what do you have? I, I can see where we were going with that. So yeah, I'm drinking a, a very a very fresh Jack Daniels and Coke in a can. How do you how do you come up on so much Jack Daniels and Coke? <laughs> I did. I did win a huge quantity of Jack Daniels and Coke from my local bottle shop uh, here in Sunshine Sun, Sunrise Beach, Queensland. Yeah, and that's actually. So I, uh, I think that's the only thing they sell. To be fair, <laughs> <laughs> and it's the least shocking part of the story because JD, what what time is it? Yeah, it's like quarter past eight in the morning. Um, so I'm really just doing this Goodness. for our listeners, doing this for you guys. Yeah, he, to be clear, he doesn't do this. <laughs> He doesn't have a problem. <laughs> no, there's, there's no problem. Not yeah. that we know. Yeah, can I can I yeah. ask you just to like elaborate on how you won it? <laughs> you yeah. win some Jack. Yeah, it was like a scratchy. I just like ran up to the store to get like a bottle of wine for a, a barbecue or hosting, and the guy was like, "Hey, here's a scratchy," and so I scratched it, and boom, um, like multiple. Um, boxes of Jack Daniels and Coke cans, like boxes and boxes of this stuff. <laughs> it's like, it's like Siri, give me the definition of something I don't want. It's like, uh, you know what, dude, keep it. <laughs> you could have, you could have taken a scratch off ticket and won a million dollars, but instead you won a million. Yeah, I think you're better off for it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There was that Ukrainian refugee who won half a million euros in Belgium Such um, this story. week Such from a scratchy. So, um, you know, in homage to him, I'm winning outrageous quantities of Jack Daniels and Coke cans in Queensland. <laughs> Well, I, I think I think by now everyone gets the sense of, of what the sort of tone we're going for here. Uh, <laughs> this is just a place to have fun. I, I didn't even introduce you guys. Well, first I'll introduce my myself first because um, that's only only polite. Uh, I'm Ethan. I do uh, I do the audio here at, at Intrigue, and I'm joined by two uh, two very special people. They both happen to be my boss. Um, so so this should be fun. Uh, start with you, JD. Introduce hey, yourself. Hey, Jeremy Dicker here. Um, joining you from Sunrise Beach in Queensland, Australia. I was in the Australian Foreign Service for 14 years and then joined John and Ethan and the team earlier this year. And John. Uh, yeah, I feel like folks probably know and are sick of my voice after speaking with you, Ethan, for so long and having such a, like an inferior voice compared to yours. But um, yes, I'm, I'm John, uh, co-founder of uh, International Intrigue, also a former diplomat. Uh, and uh, I am coming to you from... Uh, the UK, where I'm on a quick work trip, so that's that explains the different time zones. And John, I've done a terrible job not only of introducing you guys, but of introducing the concept of the show. I don't know if you want to, uh, yeah, take a little stab at it. I'll I'll, I'll give it a go. So the the idea here is that uh, we a lot of the stuff we do is you know you have to kind of be mostly serious with the odd kind of quip where you feel like you can get it in there and it's all you know it, it has to be prepared and this was the idea of like we can let our you know i hate the word super fans but our diplo club <laughs> members um to kind of just see more of the real us chatting maybe a few more anecdotes a little bit looser 
um, bit of fun. The whole the whole point of intrigue is to kind of make something that is traditionally very boring, i.e., geopolitics, international affairs, uh, make it a bit more enjoyable, make it a bit more fun. Realize that people can kind of engage with this stuff and not want to gouge their eyes out. Um, so we're gonna do we're gonna kind of chat about a few current affairs. We're gonna tell a few stories, maybe play a game. 35, 40 minutes, something like that. Uh, and hopefully people will, will realize that uh, bureaucrats aren't all boring. Jamie's going to be asleep on the couch <laughs> in, in 35 or 40 minutes. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> he, he's, to... he's solo parenting this week, so we can't begrudge him. <laughs> that's <it>. fun. <laughs> well, John, I think you actually you actually uh, did a great job of uh, – you gave me a perfect segue here because our first, our first question came from uh, a big fan, Carlos, uh, and he wanted to know – you guys have you guys have covered kind of every across the spectrum of seriousness when it comes to to global affairs and carlos wants to know what the difference is between what you both did at the foreign service and what you do now i can't really participate here because i'm i was never in the foreign service they, ne- they, they would never let time. me i'm actually I'm, I'm a flight risk i'm not i'm not allowed to leave the country it's only a matter of time before you get some political appointment in the in the u.s government ethan but for now we're happy to have you at Intrigue. John, what do you reckon? What's the difference? Um, it's hard to say. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of differences. I think the big one is the closeness to outcomes that we have now. The idea that like when we do work, we have to get, we, it has to, it has to be, uh, it has to contribute in some way to what we're trying to build. Like we can't just put things out into the ether and be like job done. And, and that's, I'm not having a shot at bureaucrats, but there's, there's the, the idea that there's a lot of layers between the work you do in your everyday job and the impact or its purpose or whatever it is. Whereas I think right now, like, you know, you edit something JD and then like 30 minutes later, someone reads it. And if it's shit, they go, Oi, you're shit. Uh, or if it's really good, they yep. go, Hey, that was really, really meaningful. Whereas I think in government, it can be kind of like, I think I might've contributed to this process, but who knows? And what was the process? Yeah. What do you reckon? Yeah, spot on. Aim into all of that. I, mean, I guess one, maybe one similarity, like, I mean, the best part of what we did in the foreign service was thinking about and, and writing about the world, right? But it was a pretty small part, realistically. Like, we were just so we were so busy responding to some randomized, urgent thing, like, oh, we need to find an ASEAN flag because the foreign minister's <laughs> suddenly doing an ASEAN <laughs> Zoom call. And, like, so everyone right. has to drop everything. And, like, in my case, like, run around Sydney trying to find a freaking ASEAN was, flag. So, like, I was going to say that. <laughs> that example didn't feel random is what I was going to say. It, it, was, it was not random. It was a very specific uh, <laughs> um, real example. But so like it's just a lot of that random stuff that happens every day, which is like urgent but not important. And I felt like it took a lot of our time. Um, but the thing that I always loved the most was like trying to sit back and think and write a bit more about the world. And one of the things I think I'm always going to miss about being on the inside like let's say there's some story breaking in i don't know let's say in china and it'll be all over the news and it'll be interesting but i'll always be i I used to be really excited to get in to my office the next morning and read the cables from our embassy in beijing or our consulate in shanghai because they were were friends of mine they were people i knew and respected and i was like and i knew that they were going to have i was going to trust what they had to say about it and it would be it was a different style of writing compared to journalism it was it was direct it was frank it wasn't worried about getting sued for defamation or or getting locked up by the secret police like they were protected by diplomatic community it was behind an encrypted um 
air gap. And so they could just say whatever the hell they wanted. And they did, um, like just generally my colleagues around the world. And so I kind of feel like we bring that same, some of that same spirit to what we do at Intrigue. Like, like the world stories yeah. are breaking and people are like, all right, this is interesting, but I'm curious to see what Intrigue are going to say in my inbox the next morning. And, you know, we can get, we can get sued and we can get locked up by the secret police, but we're in countries where that's less likely. So we should be all right. Did you ever receive cables from friends that were trying to make you laugh? <laughs> yes, actually. There, there's some pretty good lulls in, in the Australian. The, t- the titles, right? Oh, like, yeah. like the thing the thing in like diplomatic cables is like you have to be rel- relatively serious throughout the cable because it's all, you know, going to bosses who haven't had a joke since, you know, the, the Cold War. <laughs> but um the titles are often very punny and like I actually can't think of any off the top of my head. Maybe you can, JD, but like you 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 you're scrolling through this list of titles and you go like, uh, I'm not really interested in like Brunei's politics, but that's a good joke, so I'll click on it for you. <laughs> there, yeah, I can think of a couple of examples off the top of my head. There was one country where the economy minister went by the surname Ferrari. And so there was just like a lame ass title about, you know, Ferrari to drive the economy, which is like, you know, one out of 10, but it gives a flavor for, uh, for the walls out there. There was another one also where a senior cabinet minister surname was, um, dumb. And so it was like, you know, uh, prime minister drops dumb, um, which was a good one. one. Uh, (laughs) Oh, noted. I think, I think, uh, who said government employees don't have fun, Ethan? (laughs) (laughs) I've heard about those. I've heard about those parties you're attending in, uh, in Shanghai. Uh, did, how did, how did it work? I mean, did you have to, did they train you on a, on a given topic or, or a region Were were you, did you go in with a special with a specialty? I think the coolest thing about working at Intrigue for me is that I'll wake up one morning knowing nothing about, you know, something I'm going to write about for the next three hours and walk away feeling like I know a decent yeah. bit. I mean, did you feel that way a lot? That's a good question. Is there a lot of learning to be there, done? There's no, there was no formal training on the, on the like, you know, subject matter of the country where you're getting sent. Um, it, it was more just general trade craft and how to use the systems and how to write well, things like that. But I mean, from my perspective, John, um, going to Mexico, Peru, USA, the, the like the substance of it, you just kind of learn the hard way by just kind of jumping in chin first and making mistakes and meeting people and reading and just kind of absorbing everything you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I mean, you're definitely encouraged in a sort of like an informal way to kind of, you know, you get posted. They tell you off. You're off to Lima, or you're off to be- uh, Beijing or Shanghai, and so you're kind of there's there's a sort of an expectation that you'll you'll educate yourself about the place. But for for me, where I really felt that I started to get a feel for China was in language training. So, it, in in what is almost criminal, you get. I got two years of fully paid full time Mandarin training. It, That's amazing. I mean, yeah. Well, I, I it was almost kind of like I couldn't quite believe that that was possible. So I, I when I got posted to Beijing, I essentially you know within a month or so ended my job on a desk in 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 the building and kind of went down to the language unit and had a full time tutor four hours a day for two years. Half of that in Australia, half of that in in Beijing, and my job was to learn the language. But part of learning a language for anybody, yeah, I mean it really is right. But part of learning a language for anyone who knows more than one language is you can't help but kind of gather an understanding of the culture and how the people think and the history. And then 
even better than that, I did a year in Beijing where my job was to learn the language and just to learn China. Um, you know, I, it, it, yeah. So I, I, I don't feel like it was a, an official kind of like, here's a textbook, here's a course curriculum, learn about China. But you get you get this time to just kind of be curious. And, and to be clear, not to, you know, I'm not going to use any names, but a lot of people don't use that time um, to the full extent. But I feel like I was lucky enough to be in a friendship group and a, and a collegial group where everyone was super curious about what was going on. So we traveled, we ran around Beijing at night, like running into the hutongs, talking to old Chinese dudes who were drinking baijiu and playing mahjong and like really like really immersed ourselves. And that's where all the learning came from, I think. Well, John, let me ask you, I mean, how, how does that experience and, and JD, I mean, what, what you guys were doing as diplomats, how does that inform what you want to do with intrigue going forward? I know you have, I know you have big ideas about being immersed, how the best, the best reporting comes from people that are living. I and mean, can you, can you, how, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. It's the right link to draw. Um, I still think, um, you know, we, we live in, in an era now where, uh, you know, you can you can basically get any kind of information no matter where you are in the world at the drop of a hat. But I still think that what you can't replicate is exactly what I was just talking about, the on-the-ground human sense for what's going on, the human relationships, the conversations, the uh, well, for our Australian listeners, the vibe of the place. <laughs> um, you... you you, you can't you can't replicate that, and I think what you know part of what we want to do at Intrigue is you know in time is to build out a network of folks who are doing exactly that, like are reporting from Shanghai or Singapore or or Africa or where wherever it is, so that you kind of like you can read a report written by an analyst in DC and it's really smart, it's really thoughtful, but there's a je ne sais quoi that you kind of you you miss, yeah. right? Yeah, JD. I mean, well, I guess we can move on to the the second question here. Uh, talk about talk about those those lived experiences i mean what's what's what was the coolest place that you went oh i mean i was, I was so lucky and you have to you have to rank all of the countries and then send <laughs> send letters i was gonna say give us give yeah. us a history <laughs> uh, go, go really I'm go sure really insulting with the countries that you didn't like <laughs> just say the worst thing you can imagine yeah 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 canada sucks no, no. um <laughs> The, um, I literally said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I look. I, I mean, I, I was just you know, keep growing up in the suburbs. I was just so thirsty to see the world, and I had this real hunger for adventure and to do something bigger than myself. And I was really, you know, I feel like I really got lucky with my first posting, which was to Mexico City, which for an Australian is just the absolute other end of the world. But more than that, the timing of when I landed there was right when Australia was running for a seat on the UN Security Council. Oh, yeah. And so all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden, this, you know, far-flung Australian embassy, um, which was, you know, not at the forefront of Australian foreign policy, all of a sudden, because it's accredited to nine countries across Central America, as well as Cuba and Dominican Republic, all of a sudden, so, we're so just what, what is it? Explain what accredited means, because that's kind of a weird thing, right? Yeah. So it, it's basically most, most countries do this. You don't need an embassy, Australia doesn't need an embassy in every country in Latin America. It's just a, mm -hmm. you know, a bit further away for us. Um, and so we have just a few embassies that are accredited to multiple countries at once. And so right, you'll have a in the Bolivian and Paraguayan embassy. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. exactly. Um, and so for, 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 for Australia at the time in Mexico City, we're accredited all of Central America plus Cuba and Dominican Republic. And so what it means is for you know baby diplomats like me, just spent a lot of time crisscrossing that region um, and we divided it up amongst ourselves. So, so we focused um, on three countries each. And so 
I happen to be the only guy um, in the team in the Australian embassy in Mexico City. And so we divided it up partly on personal security um, grounds because there were some parts of that region where it was not maybe not safe for a woman just to be flying solo. So I ended up going to Honduras, El Salvador and Nicaragua like a dozen times each. Like I was just there every every you know, every month or two. Thank you for your service. <laughs> and it, yeah, it was um, it was just a nonstop fire hose of ridiculous, amazing experiences where I just couldn't believe I was getting paid to do this. A kid, you know, a guy in my twenties, um, um, crisscrossing in this far flung part of the world. And I guess the like most of the time, I just kind of said yes and just just rolled with it, um, which I think is probably pretty common for us. One t- one example that's you know just random example that comes to mind. Um, it was in Mexico and it was in the 2012 presidential elections when Enrique Peña Nieto um, was, was, he was the clear front runner. Um, really interesting dude, married to a glamorous telenovela superstar um, who, known by the name La Gaviota, which means um, seagull. Well, that was the name <laughs> Seagull. Yeah. Yes. That's, a, that's the sexiest, coolest sounding name for the shittest animal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't really want my doing that. I really, I wouldn't want my my significant other being referred to as the seagull. This steals your chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, he was he was the front runner, and I just remember um, through just through a random friend like drinking a Corona one afternoon, a guy who was a journalist mentioned, "Oh, Enrique Pinieto, he's doing this massive rally out on the the outskirts of Mexico City, um, and like, yeah, you should check it out." And so I reached out to someone in his party and was like, hey, is it true you're doing this rally? Can I come? And he's like, yeah, we'd love you to come. And so it was in this, wow. uh, I guess we'd call it a slum. Um, it's called Valle de Chalco. Um, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time it was this huge sort of peri-urban, you know, just improvised housing and just millions mm. of lives crammed in there. And the the embassy driver took me out there. It took like two and a half hours to get there. Like, you know, the oh outskirts of Mexico City. Wow. And I was the only foreign diplomat who, who turned up. Um, because of how far away it was and because of, I guess, its reputation as a place. And so they sat me right next to Enrique Peñeto at the front no, of this come huge, on. No. this huge, yeah, this huge rally. And there was like free tacos and there was bands pumping tunes. And it was this like, you know, you know, explosive atmosphere. And he gets up and gives this cracking address. Um, and then afterwards on the way to his motorcade, I walked with him and had a quick chat and you Incredible. Know, said, you know, just relayed a couple of messages and, and that was it. But like the experience is just full of these moments where you just sort of say yes to something. And next thing you know, you're speaking to the next president of Mexico. I was going to say, I feel like I've heard dozens of stories that, you, that you've told about your time in the foreign service and everyone is jaw dropping. That might be the best one. And I, you, I mean, I've known <laughs> yeah. you for a handful of months now. I haven't heard it. That's well, wild. I ended, I ended I up meeting him again. That. He came, he came to he came to Australia uh, for the G20 as Mexico's president. And I was his, um, you know, lead liaison officer. So like the government person bowing and scraping and, you know, getting into his your ice water icy enough, sir. <laughs> exactly. So it was fun. It was fun to meet him a second time in Australia as well. But did he remember you? No, no. I mean, he said he did. He said he did, but of course he didn't. I mean, well, of course he's a consummate like a, a, politician. Yeah. Yeah. A, a president of a country like that would be meeting thousands of people every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a story to follow up like that. Like I didn't get within, you know, yelling distance to a Chinese like <laughs> yeah. senior official. We were we were very much on the out when I was there. Um, uh, I I mean, Ch- China is a is a really 
wild place. Um, you know, like anything can happen at any given time. But I, I think, <laughs> I mean, given it's the first episode of this and this may, may be the only episode, I'll, I'll tell a story that it happened when I was in Beijing and we went out west to like near, near Xinjiang, which pe- people might be familiar tell with. Tell the story like but- it's the last story you'll ever tell. <laughs> yeah, because it because it because it almost certainly will be. Um, <laughs> but um, so the west the west the western part of China is like a you know a huge sparsely you know if you think of Beijing and Shanghai as the most densely populated places in the world, this is the least densely populated place in the world. It's deserts. It's high on the Tibetan plateau. Um, beautiful, stunning, but stark. Anyway, I I went out there with a couple of friends, um, some who you will know, Jeremy, uh, and we went out there for five or six days. Um, flew out there from Beijing, uh, you know, just for a bit of tourism. But unbeknownst to me, the Tibetan plateau plateau runs from like Tibet, but it runs all the way north. Like it's a huge plateau, and you go from kind of. 800 meters above sea level to three and a half thousand meters above sea level. Um, and you fly there. So you don't really realize it. You just land and all of a sudden you're three and a half thousand meters above sea level. So the first day we had a few, few beers and then we ran up the local hill, like hiking and whatnot. And I got to the top of this hill and I just started to feel pretty crook, like pretty sick. I was like, Oh, I don't, I must've had a few too many last night. Maybe this, this yak beer out here in Western China is no good. So I, I, I was like, all right, I'm going back to the hotel room. And I barely made it back to the hotel room. I was like, I, thought, I honestly thought I was dying, uh, prone to a little bit of hypochondria, but I was, I was in a really <laughs> bad way. Wow. Anyway, fell asleep. I was like, must be, you know, realistically, I was like, it's probably food poisoning or something bad like that. Slept it off. Next day, no better. We, we continue our journey. I slowly start to realize that it's altitude sickness, which... I had mm. never really considered anything other than like, I'm not climbing Everest. I don't need to worry about this. <laughs> um, anyway, I was really sick. Like for, for anyone who's had altitude sickness, it's it's really serious. Like I thought I was dying. It's like the worst hangover you've ever had with flu, with everything. Um, and the, really the only cure is to go back down below about 2,000 meters. But I didn't want to ruin my friend's trip by being like, we need to leave. So I the hero that I am, I toughed it out except for the fact that I also then managed to get a real bad bout of gastro. (laughs) And in Western China uh, to say the facilities are poor would be to assume there are facilities at all. Um, (laughs) Like not to get too graphic, but I remember finding a bathroom on the road, a bathroom again, a shed (laughs) with a hole in it um, off a cliff. But unbeknownst to me, after I'd, you know, relieved myself, I walked out to just see a herd of goats running away covered in my excrement because they'd been feeding underneath the toilet. Um, And like, I'll tell you, that's pretty, you know, you think you've hit rock bottom and then you see that and you're like, oh, I don't know how deep this canyon is. Um, I also got caught short again and had to like hold myself and like relieve myself off a cliff because it was the only place to do it in Western China. Uh, so like, there's a lot of, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be too graphic and put people off their <laughs> breakfast, lunch or dinner right now, but put, put simply, I didn't meet a future president. Yeah. Instead, I, instead <laughs> I voided all of my internal organs in Western China, somewhere on the Tibetan plateau. And, and you know, what a story it was. It was horrific. Well, the, the prompt from the, from the reader that was suggested was best slash worst ever work trip. Well, there so we, we go. go. One <laughs> we, we, yeah. One, one Are you each. not entertained, Carlos? Are you not entertained? <laughs> wow. 
Um, <laughs> and and yeah, oh, well, you, interestingly, you certainly... those folks out there don't necessarily have toilet paper either. So that's a conundrum when you're traveling as well. Oh, man. I that I feel like anyone serving in in most of the world in the foreign service has got a lot of stories like that. I, I certainly... Not going to get into mine, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Or Mexico, this could, this could descend real quick. I'm sorry. We need to raise this down, and I apologize. But it can, it can like, it can wipe, it can have like serious uh, impacts on your work. Um, and there's so many amazing stories of like, you know, a friend of mine who was on posting in India organizing um, a massive visit uh, for like a visiting a very senior Australian official and was meant to be the one running the show. And then the morning that the VIP jet was touching down, just got wiped out by something and there's just nothing you can do and so some poor some poor bugger in the high commission has to just take the program and be like all right make, i guess i'll figure best, this out yeah. prime minister this way um and it, you just can't control it is there is there a word for montezuma's revenge in, in china <laughs> Mao Zedong's I mean, revenge like like every 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 other day <laughs> just just anyone Tuesday yeah. Tuesday <laughs> oh god to our Chinese listeners we apologize yeah. uh, well I mean we could talk about this all day this is I, I love hearing these stories uh, and I'm sure I'm sure we can Maybe this can just be a recurring thing where we, we get more stories from the foreign service. Oh, I got, I got sick a lot more in China too, yeah. so we can do this for as long as you want. <laughs> we can just do one an episode. All four corners of the country, John getting violently ill. Uh, before I, I haven't even had dinner, but before I void it, uh, let's, uh, let's do a little around the horn news roundup. What do, what do you say? Who wants to go first? Let's do it. The JD, idea here just being, we have, to be clear, We've not uh, told each other what the story is. So all the analysis you're getting is completely raw, unfiltered off the top. Um, and I, I prepared mine as just kind of like a story that kind of flew under the radar, but I think is a bit more important potentially than than people think. That was my premise, but maybe that was wrong. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I have a kind of a serious story. That, so all so right. I hope, I hope you're faces, ready. Yeah. Yeah. The, the story here... Uh, uh, Palestinian Authority President, uh, Mah- the leader, I don't know if he's the president, the leader, Mahmoud Abbas, was in China uh, this past week meeting with Xi Jinping, oh, yeah, who made some pretty grand comments on trying to resolve the, the conflict in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Question to you two. I mean, it's sort of unfathomable that China could resolve this issue. But if they do, what does that do for their their status as like a uh, diplomatic negotiator on the world stage? Untouchable. I mean, John, you were you were shaking your head there. Um, I think with with skepticism that anything would come out of it, um, and that was my my gut reaction as well. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, the fact that they're feeling the fact that Beijing feels confident enough to to wade into it at all, I think, is an interesting signal that it's sending to the world. Um, but I, it's hard to see it succeeding where you know many many others have failed, um, mm. and it's hard to see Israel. Um, I, I can't speak for the Palestinian side or all the Israeli side of that matter, but it's hard to see Israel uh, being more open to these sorts of discussions with Beijing than it would be with with DC. What about you, John? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I have two conflicting thoughts about this. Uh, the first is I agree entirely, JD. Like it's. The, the problem, uh, the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
isn't a problem because it's America trying to negotiate it. It's a problem between those two countries slash authorities, territories that goes back so far, so complicated, so religious, so all of that cultural. Like America, you can argue that America hasn't done a good job or you can argue that America's done the best it can, whatever. But like the issue isn't fundamentally America's part in that. So it... I, I can't see a way that China involve me, involving and they're just going to walk in and go like, oh, you guys didn't think of this and now you're all uh, <laughs> going to hold hands. Like that, that doesn't seem yeah. real to me. But I was going to say the conflicting part of that is like, I think it's easy to forget that it's a really good thing that China's trying. Like yeah. if China did solve that like it i think a lot of people in the west or a lot of media pundits in the west would be like oh my god what does this mean for it like no like if they can solve that problem everyone should applaud because that would save lives and resolve one of the worst problems in the world i, I don't think they will but no. like we need to be you don't want to you don't want you don't want it to be a problem because you want to dunk on china right i think it's an interesting mm. thought experiment because well first of all I think the Palestinians, I don't know if the Palestinians see the U.S. as like a, a fair arbiter of the conflict. So right. maybe there is maybe there is a void for a, another party to fill. And the other piece is in every instance where China has served as a, a major diplomatic uh, player, it's been because both sides see it as an indispensable economic partner. And Israel, China's Israel's third largest uh, trading partner. So just just something to watch. It's not going to happen, but I, I think it's fun to fun to imagine it. Yeah, yeah. it's intriguing for sure. Maybe Why not try? Why not try? JD? The one that caught my eye, central bankers over, you know, throughout most of my life have just been these sort of obscure nerds, just uh. like ra- raising interest rates and then dropping them. And you just don't hear about them, but they've been in the news more and more lately. Um, and a couple have been in the news for all the wrong reasons. One, our readers might remember we wrote a little bit about the the Lebanon central bank chief, a guy called Raid yeah. Salome, who, I mean, the allegations suggest has just not even been trying to hide the corruption, just like raking in hundreds of millions of dollars and buying French, you know, luxury apartments, whatever. So that one um, has been brewing. But there was another one that hit the news overnight. The governor of the central bank of Nigeria, um, um, a guy yep. called... Um, Emifele um, is his surname. Um, and just, just after Ethan and I discussed on a podcast that oh, things are looking yeah. up for Nigeria and this breaks. <laughs> I, I feel personally assaulted. <laughs> so Godwin, Godwin Emifele, I mean, he's been the central bank governor of Nigeria for something like nine years. And I mean, I think pretty much everyone would say it's he's presided over like a bit of a shit show, like two recessions, um, mass inflation, um, 65% devaluation of the currency. So, like, it was, there was already a sense that um, he was not, um, you know, seen as a high performer. But then looks like he's been uh, booted out of the job and arrested by Nigeria's secret police. Um, That's and, the problem. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I, it's there's not really a lot of public information about what the charges are, what the suspicions are. There was already um, an investigation looking into his office on a bunch of stuff, um, you know, suspicions of money being misallocated and, and whatnot. But yeah, it's all it's all murky. It's all interesting. I guess central bank governors are traditionally very independent and they can't be sacked. Um, so I guess one way to sack someone is to um, 
get them arrested uh, um, and 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 held in incommunicado by your secret police, which is that, that's what's happening now. He was a fascinating guy, like super interventionist, um, and like wading into Nigeria's uh, daily life in a way that most central bank governors would would never would never was he was he pushing the the currency change yeah he he was so he was like each week would release um a new newsletter which would be adding new products um to a list of products in nigeria that that you that were uh subject to currency restrictions so for example you know you couldn't use us dollars to import those goods so there was, there was like a constant sort of uncertainty um, as he's, he would just decide a new good was getting added to that each week. But he would do other things as well. Like he ordered for, um, there were these like black market money um, exchanges in a market that would work under these trees in the shade. And he ordered for those trees to be removed. Um, like like really random specific petty, interventions. Petty like, squabbles. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he clamped down on... Um, on cryptocurrencies which nigerians were increasingly using to sort of yeah they'll be sides sidestep some of the you know practical issues that come with a rapidly depreciating currency so really interesting controversial figure even more so now that he's sort of disappeared and and is being interrogated by nigeria's secret police do do you think my my spidey senses get tingling when someone's fired and arrested do you think he was potentially not on board with the new president slash a challenger slash a source of unrest because like it's one thing to be like hey buddy you've been the central bank governor for nine years let's arrange a political deal for you to have a nice you know or not, or like in those countries like have a nice villa and you know you, you keep your ill-gotten gains or whatever it is but we won't you don't cause me problems i won't cause you problems but to arrest him feels like an escalation that behind it and this is entire speculation because i'm talking through my hat here but like just that idea of like in jail you can't do any damage or i'm at least putting down a marker to anybody who might want to challenge me yeah there was i think there's the initial speculation is that he was definitely becoming one of the most powerful people in the country um yeah and powerful in a way that um that was i mean he was appointed by good luck jonathan our favorite oh, that's too good uh, favorite world leader name um, so two presidents ago, um, and he became the second longest serving um, central bank governor for Nigeria. So he became really powerful, really interventionist. And I think there was a sense that, um, you know, you, you have this um, Tanubu new president come in with some pretty bold reforms, including getting rid of their fuel subsidy. Um, I guess it's not surprising you would want to clear out some of the some of this dead wood uh, that we might refer to, like just old school um, legacy blockers, just get rid of them. But yeah, who knows, man? It's all it's all really who knows. Many. Yeah, knowing knowing absolutely nothing about Nigerian monetary policy, I wonder if this like is a move towards uh, something more orthodox. Like we saw the uh, Turkey as a new central banker too. Yeah, like a Simsek. Wells Fargo. You're, something. You're stealing my story. Stop it. Oh, oh. we said no this way. wasn't going to happen. Great segue. Oh. This is an interesting one. Let's segue. Well, into okay, well, segue. We'll story. do it. Before we finish the Nigerian thing, I know that I have a friend in, in Abuja who is a diplomat in Abuja who will be listening to this. So if we're talking absolute rubbish about this, make sure you let me know, friend, who you know you are, and we'll 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 correct the record next week or at least or not. update with insights. But before to Ethan be clear, steals- we're talking we are talking absolute rubbish about this. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But before Ethan steals my thunder, I can't believe that both of us picked central bank stories. Like, oh, come on. We're neither of us are macroeconomists. Like, <laughs> who knew, who knew monetary I, policy I think we was both so tried, 
so hot these days. I know. I, I I think we both tried to be like, what won't anyone? So to be clear to the listeners, we we purposely didn't tell each other about these stories so that we could kind of play the kind of curious uh, normie to these stories to be like, <laughs> ask questions. Uh, and then the risk, I, which I actually chatted to with Ethan about like yesterday, I was like, but what if we both choose the same story? That'll be really embarrassing. We and we did. got pretty close there, Jamie. <laughs> Um, but okay, well, I'll, I'll, I mean, you you all know about it then, but, um, so I I think the, I think the context here is that Erdogan was won re-election, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, President Erdogan, uh, there was a lot of concern, uh, that if he did win re-election that he, like, what would happen then? Would he clamp down? Would he take the fact that the, the Turkish election was pretty close? Would he take that as a sign of like, all right, no more, none of this freedom stuff. We're going to be like militantly locked down or would he say oops that was too close i'm going to listen to the people and i'm going to kind of reform things you know i think it's too early to say but since he was re-elected he's basically replaced a lot of his government with bureaucrats technocrats um so one was a new finance minister um a guy called uh, Mehmet Simsek and then also the Tur- uh, the turkish turkish central bank governor Hafiz Gay Erkan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. In fact, I'm sure I'm not. But um, so two two guys who are former bankers, two like establishment picks. She, she's central banker is a, a woman. So, oh yeah, sorry. I should yeah. I did know that. <laughs> I apologize. Mehmet Simset is the guy. She's what's her name again? I, I I've got it written down here. I, I wouldn't I'm, dare try. I'm gonna get it right. Hafiz Gay Erkan. Okay. Um, both bankers. He and she both very establishment. Both very um. Like traditional picks seem to be pretty orthodox. Uh, Erdogan has said he is willing to like tack back to the kind of, you know, normal kind of monetary policy. And again, the context there is that he famously, despite 85% inflation in Turkey over the last 12 months, has said we should lower interest rates, which I think every macroeconomist, economic expert would say is ridiculous. Um, but he looks like he's they're, they're open to moving back to kind of more normal policy. I think there's two interesting angles to that is like, one, how long do they last? Is this just like a show to international markets to be like, hey, Goldman Sachs, recommend us to your clients because we're all good and we've got a terrible currency and we need to fix that. Um, And then, you know, 12 months later when old mate is raising interest rates to kind of like 40%, which is what I saw the Goldman Sachs research notes said they need to go to 40%. Like they said like, oh, they need to hit 40% for a while and then probably come back to something like 15%. And I think they're at about 7% now. Mm. Um, You know, when when that central banker does that, what's Erdogan going to do? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so skeptical on this. I, I read an article... I mean, Erdogan's whole shtick was that he's a great builder. That's what he came to power as. After the 1999 earthquake, he rebuilt the whole country and is super chummy with the the contracting sector. Um, and those guys have, have made a killing off of low interest rates. And as soon as construction right. cri- prices start to rise, they're going to be pretty upset. So I, I, I just Everyone don't buy out it. Of business, yeah. The thing that... Um, yeah. I was, I was going to say... I, I wondered. I wanted to know what happened behind the scenes to for Erdogan to do such a massive one eighty on a signature policy. And there was a story that came out um, over the last day or so that apparently Simsek, this you know, the, the term market darling keeps getting rolled out for him. Like just, um, just a very highly credible, highly respected, sort of sensible, you know, 
uh, finance minister that the market, whoever that is, seems to love. He apparently pulled together a PowerPoint presentation and spent three hours going through it with Erdogan um, gently, but I guess firmly explaining why Erdogan's entire policy of, yeah, like why they are on, on a path to ruin. And so he just like, apparently it was data rich with graphs, just like logically f- flowing through why they urgently need to change track. And it worked um, because, I mean, you've got to be pretty confident to go out there and say what Simsek said, which was, we're going to return to a more rational ground, rational, which, yeah. which is essentially saying what Erdogan's been doing for the last while has just been irrational. Um, so you've yeah. got to feel pretty confident in yourself and that you've got his backing to go and say that. And apparently it was this like epic PowerPoint presentation um, that he he spent hours um, running through with Erdogan. I'd love to see it. Yeah, that's quite the deck. Erdogan is uh, an old dog, among the oldest dogs. Uh, so it'll be yeah. interesting to see if he can learn a new trick. He's been in power, what, since like 2001 it- or something, right? Yeah, it's for 2002. Yeah. 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 And mayor of Istanbul before. It just also like... You know, on the outside, we just see governments like announce new programs or give speeches and, and then like the news goes to like the weather and the sport or whatever. But like, I, I know certainly on the inside in, in Canberra, there were like, you know, you call it like a cab, cabinet submission, like a whole of government kind of update to the prime minister and all the cabinet ministers about some important issue. And sometimes there would, you know, there would be these like lengthy several hour sessions in the cabinet room with a PowerPoint presentation and graphs and all this stuff. And it would be like a a senior bureaucrat or a senior Australian diplomat who's up there in the cabinet room, like walking them through all this stuff and fielding questions. And I don't know, it's kind of encouraging to know that real work, like they don't just, you can change things. Yeah, exactly. It's not just like, here's a piece of paper, just sign it and we'll go and do that. It's like, there are these like lengthy substantive conversations, which can change the course of a country. Politicians. John, that's a fun one. Put their pants on one leg at a time like us um, yes it was a fun one good i'm glad i'm glad it wasn't completely spoiled let's keep it with let's keep it with you are we what are we what are we doing now ethan you're the you're the quiz time oh it's yeah. quiz time you let's it's okay. quiz time um now this is this is you're up hugely experimental um because we're gonna try and do some sound effects here um if i can find if i can cue <laughs> them up okay so the premise of this quiz is there's gonna be it's it's me as quiz master uh and ethan and and, and jeremy as uh quiz ets whatever um and we're going to do two questions and the questions are going to be like lists so we're going to go back and forth like a penalty shootout and the first person to not be able to uh, answer one of the lists is out and we're going to do two of those oh, and I love it. there'll be a third tiebreaker if required um oh i love it john you That's like fun. it oh, i'm glad okay <laughs> yeah now um, <laughs> I've got some rudimentary sound effects here. So listeners, if this doesn't work, we will can it for the next one. But if it does, I'm going to lean into it for the next, the next time. Um, but the first question, oh, well, actually, no, let's, let's do, let's do a, a quick toss, uh, number between one and 10. I'm thinking of it right now. And Ethan, what's seven, se- Jeremy, four, well, it was four. So Jeremy goes, oh, oh. you can choose. You want to go first or second? Penalty shootout. There's, there's absolutely no advantage in going second in this type of quiz. <laughs> that's that's true. There's no. <laughs> that's also true. Okay. Okay. First question here is um, we're gonna we're gonna list leaders of P five countries since 1980. Uh, it's a nice it's a nice round. There's lots of them. 
in fact, I think there are 35 across the five permanent. And for people who aren't aware, there's five permanent members of the UN Security Council. I'm not going to tell these two which countries they are because if they don't know, they're both fired immediately. Um, but there's 35 leaders across the five countries. Uh, any order, doesn't matter. I'll give you like moral points if you know roughly the years, but you don't have to. Uh, so I will start with Jeremy. All right. What's your answer? Uh, so let's start with the US. Do you say from the night from 1980? From 1980 to today. So like anyone who yeah, was, okay. and, so, and, and if they were in power in like right. 1978, as long as they served in 1980 or afterwards, yeah, then that okay. counts. All right. So let's say Ronald Reagan, George Bush. One, 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 one. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh. Oh, Penalty okay, shootout. Got I got it. We go back mean, and forth. We go back and forth. Just walked up and kicked <laughs> okay. two I'll, goals. I'll take, I'll take George Bush because I don't All want right. to give any. I don't, I don't want HW. Two, two All ticks. All right. Back to Jeremy. Uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, Jimmy Carter. Was was he, he? That was the tail end of his presidency, was it? Oh, no, sorry. Did you say Jimmy January Carter? January 1980. He did. Yeah, j- till January of 1980. Correct, correct. Just. Yeah, okay. All right. Just. Uh, wow. Good one. Yeah. Just. Uh, so I already said Bill Clinton, George W. Uh, yep. <laughs> Sorry for the sound effects being slow. Oh, wait. I can't you said George. Them. Yeah, we can't hear them. Oh, you can't hear them? I'll just say yes then. Can the sound effects. All right. <laughs> that didn't work. Uh, yes okay. is the answer to that one. So who do we have so far? We've got the presidents up to George W. You're, you're stalling. Oh. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Barack Obama. Correct. Donald Trump. Joe Biden. Correct. Correct. <laughs> there we go. This is where things get interesting. All right. Let's do China. Uh, no, thanks. I'm going to have to hurry you there. Um, Deng Xiaoping. Yes. Boris Yeltsin. Yes. I'm I'm impressed, uh, gentlemen. Going well. Hu <laughs> Jintao. Correct. Vladimir Putin. Correct. Do you want to have a a go at the years there, Ethan, for Vladimir Putin for extra credit? Huh. 1999 till today. Close. 20, 20, 20, 2000 to 2008, and then 2012 to now. Which is another. Well, he was president. He was president from 2008 leader. to 2012. Leader. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair. Um, who's the perestroika guy? Well, isn't, isn't that the question? <laughs> isn't that the yeah. question? So I'm I'm a Jack Daniels and Coke deep at um in the morning. Um, anyway, we'll come back to that dude. Uh, Gonna have to press you. Uh, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Correct. Gorbachev. Correct. There you go. That's the perestroika guy. <laughs> That's the one. Uh. <laughs> Uh, so another P5 is the UK. So let's go with uh, Margaret Thatcher. David Cameron. You're, you're, you're a big fan, right, of, of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, David Cameron, correct. <laughs> uh, John Major. Also correct. I've, I've done one Boris already, so I'll go with another. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, Tony Blair. The trust, the trust machine. Correct. The cabbage. The cabbage, cabbage herself. Lettuce, actually. <laughs> cabbage would have lasted way longer. <laughs> a, that's a sturdy vegetable. Gordon Brown. Big uh, Gordy. Scottish machine. Rishi Sunak. Dishy Rishi. Dishy I'm, Rishi. Gentlemen, this is incredible. 
Theresa maybe. Yeah, well, okay. So the UK is ticked <laughs> off. The US is ticked off. We've basically just got another country, a couple yeah. more in Russia and, and, and China. The, the one... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm impressed. England, the UK's southern neighbor is going to get tricky for me, uh, but I'll start. I'll start yeah. with Macron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hollande, Francois Hollande. Yeah, I, I, if you get all of them, I like will quit. This is incredible. Nicholas Sarkozy. <laughs> Sarkozy, well done. Uh, Jacques Chirac. Jacques Chirac. Yes. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> there are there are to be clear we have uh seven left across 35 oh, wow. gentlemen well jd's done. jd's just... got the luxury of of having lived through the, of, is, of more Google? Leaders. is that what he's doing <laughs> no 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 uh, no no i would never i would never accuse him of cheating i would accuse him of being old uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely feeling was that uh was uh mitterrand I mean, I now at this point need to like audit you for Google stuff. This is was getting it, so it, impressive. That was, that, no, this is so could, impressive. I couldn't nice remember one. if he was the fifties or what. I'm so impressed. No, I, dude, I was gonna guess that I'm, as well. Like, I, I, no wait, I think, was, I think uh, we're uh, oh. yeah, it's passing belief now, gentlemen. I see you every day. I, I know that you're neither this smart. <laughs> uh, okay, we've got um, we've got one, two, yeah, we've got six left. I mean, there's a couple there's, more. There's oh, oh three, I got it. There's three there's if you get, I will be shocked. But there's three gettable ones. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's a couple, I think there's we're missing a couple in China and I don't know them off the top of my head. Uh, so Jeremy- Jiang Zemin? Yes, you nearly got timed out then. Yes! That's why. <laughs> okay. And I got I got the kicker that will that will put JD out of his misery, and he could have gotten it a while ago. I could have gotten it a while ago because you gave us a I hint. I did John. give you a hint. Ah! Yes, Medvedev. Yes, I gave you the hint. Okay. I gave you that little Easter egg. Okay, we've got we've got. I'll even I'll even because there's four left. I'll give you a quick hint: three from Russia, one wow. from France. That one of them is three one of them Russia. is gettable in my view. If you're not an expert. Mm. It must have been the guy before Gorbachev. And and Jeremy, I, I, yeah. I hate to press you, but I must no, press I you. Think I'm, I think I'm out. I can't think of it. Okay, so you started, so it's yeah. even right now. If you're out, that's a win to Ethan. No, wait, it's even now. So Ethan has to get this one to win. Mike, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> yeah, it's even oh, right no. now. Oh, so there is there is a good reason to defer on the kickoff. Yes, because um, you must win it because it's, it's like 20 all. Because, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it wasn't Khrushchev. I know it wasn't. I just but can't think of who na- came but before. But big name. Yeah. <sighs> I hate to press you, Ethan, but I must press you. I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. JD wins. It was oh, a close no, one. No, that's a tie. Yeah, we're a tie. Yeah, that's a tie. a tie. Oh, wait. Okay. No, don't I win? Because okay, I win first. Ha- I think I win. <laughs> but you then, Ethan was the last one to get one right. So that was even. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even you're, right. Right. you're right. So you're that's, right. A, you're that's right. a square right. off. Um, you could have had uh, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, right. who was French president from 1974 to 1981. Wow. No chance. No uh, chance. And I think my pronunciation was beyond reproach. <laughs> uh, you could have had Konstantin Chernoko, who was uh, Soviet premier from 84 no to 85. If you, if you know your Soviet history, I think this one might have been gettable um, because I think he was in charge during Chernobyl, I want to say. Uh, Yuri Andropov. Uh, 
And then the one that I, you know, I, I don't like to use the word disappointed, <laughs> but uh, Leonid Brezhnev. Uh, Brezhnev. Brezhnev. 1980 oh. to 1982. Yeah. But honestly, overall, gentlemen, very, very, very good. job, EP. That was a fair draw. Okay. So it's uh, nil all. Let's move on to the second one uh, and let's have a little alacrity in this one so that time doesn't escape us. Um, there are 13 countries or roughly 13 countries, depending on how you define it, that are, make up the African region known as the Sahel. It's that geographical region between the Sahara and the Savannah in Southern Africa. It's a transition geographic zone. Um, so Unless you've been living, for- living under a sand dune, you know what that is. <laughs> Well, just in case you have been, I want to make sure the listeners know what have some idea what we're talking about. It's a a strip of land that runs east to west across sort of mid northern Africa. Uh, so there's the definitions get a little bit sloppy depending on what source you use. So I'll accept the ones that are either in or out. Um, but thirteen countries. Uh, let's start with Ethan. Given we started with Jeremy, Mauritania. Correct. I got no idea. Chad. Correct. Ooh. Niger. Correct. Central African Republic? Incorrect. <laughs> yes. Yes. Incorrect. Uh, Ethan wins that right. round. Uh, you could have had, just just for interest, Burkina Faso, Mali, Nigeria, the northern parts, Senegal, southern parts, Sudan, South Sudan, Cameroon, the very, very, very northern strip. That's kind of controversial. Mm-hmm. Algeria, the very southern part. And then some people include Eritrea and Ethiopia and some. Wow. Don't. All right. Cool. Good well one, done. Huh. I mean, less, I'll be honest, less, less impressive, but, uh, <laughs> no, you know, it's a tough question. All right. We're going to do a third one um, because I want either Ethan to confirm his win or this to end in a very unsatisfying oh. time. No, well, mostly because I wrote... Why would I, I want, Do you know why? Because I wrote the question. I don't want to waste time. <laughs> okay, that's like, I don't. I don't want my, my question to go unanswered. Um, and this one is, I, if I do say so myself, an interesting one. Um, flat, there are 41 national flags with the colour green. Mm. We're not go. naming all 41, <laughs> are we? You, if, you name, if, you name, if you name more than a dozen, I'll be impressed. Okay, Algeria. Correct. Italy. Correct. Jamaica. Correct. Good one. Mexico. Correct. Hungary. Correct. Oh my goodness. Uh, Pakistan. Correct. Nice one. Lebanon. Correct. That tree. <laughs> the old Cyprus. Yeah, J- JD gave the side eye on that one. <laughs> so I feel like Solomon Islands has got a little sneaky green in there. Well, it's not on my list here, but I'll be honest. I did, oh, I did, go. I did get a big list and went through them with my eyes. So maybe I got it wrong, but I don't think it is. <laughs> think- all good. We'll, I'll take the loss. Let's just say it doesn't. Ethan, give me one more to confirm your win. India, correct. Nice. Hey everyone, quick editor's note here. Solomon Islands does in fact have the color green. It's actually one of the two most prominent colors on the flag, but JD is too polite to correct John and John is too proud to admit that he used ChatGPT. I still won the quiz, but just wanted to correct that. Big ones you missed, just real quick. Brazil. Classic. Bangladesh. Iran and Iraq. 
Ireland. Mm. Oh, Obviously. classic. Yeah. yeah, Nigeria. Also, lots oh, of green yeah. on that bad all boy. Green. Yeah. Perhaps the greenest of all flags, Saudi Arabia. Extremely green. Oh, it's all green. Yeah. Pretty, pretty famously green, particularly in kind this. Kind of a stark contrast with how the country actually mm. looks. Well, that's right. Yeah, green, but it's desert. Um, their sports teams wear a lot of this, South Africa. A bit of green in there. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. A little bit of green. Not much, though. <laughs> uh, Syria and the UAE. There are plenty more, but those are the ones that I feel like right. were gettable. Were gettable, yeah. Good one. Oh, that's great. All right, Ethan. I, I'm declaring Ethan the, the, the comprehensive well winner on that. Well done. He's the Well, then in that case, I'll, I'll sing us out. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, this is a blast. I feel like we all loosened up as the uh, episode went on. Uh, tons of fun. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Yeah. F- closing thoughts. Anyone? Well, I think if, it, if if folks have comments on this, I mean, nice comments. We're, we're, we're sensitive we're sensitive people, but uh, let us know what you think of this. Is, this. is this a format yeah. you like? Uh, what, what could we do less of, more of? Um, but yeah, a hell of a lot. I mean, it was a lot of fun doing this, so it doesn't feel doesn't feel uh, arduous to get on a call and drink drink a bit of wine and talk, yeah, and talk rubbish with you. <laughs> yeah, it's been a blast. Yeah, look forward to doing it again. Thanks to Carlos. Carlos in our uh, Diplo Club gave us some questions, and hopefully the rest of the yeah. crew shoots some some questions for next time. Huge thanks, yeah, huge thanks to, to Carlos. We allotted three minutes for the quiz, and and we probably took up three minutes of pure thinking. I apologies for writing questions for questions. That were long. So apologies for that, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I love quizzes. Yeah.